Welcome to the Auxiliary Chamber, the International Law Podcast. Welcome back everyone to the Auxiliary Chamber. My name is Bram Berger and it's my pleasure to introduce episode 26 of the podcast. This week we are diving into legal PhDs with the brilliant Julian Ann, who have both recently graduated from Lenin University with their LLMs in Public International Law and are now PhD researchers at the European University Institute in Florence and the University of Amsterdam respectively. In this longer episode, we will delve into their origin story of getting into academia and present a short overview of their respective research projects. Dive deeper into the PhD experience, looking at the proposal and application process, the role of a PhD researcher, and what the end goal is of a PhD. Finally, they both highlight the positives of public international law and the legal academic community, as well as rounding off our discussion by highlighting certain issues and some book recommendations. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode. Welcome back, everyone, to the Auxiliary Chamber. I'm honored today to be here with two starting PhD academics and two close friends of mine from the Leiden LLM Masters who have just graduated. I'm here with Julia Galera Oliva and Anne Goyen. How are you both today? Good, Bram. Thank you We're for doing having very us. well. Thank you for having me. It was lovely to see you all in some kind of virtual room. So, very nice to see you guys. Yeah, exactly. I'm very happy to be here too. I thought maybe to start, I would ask both of you to introduce yourselves a little bit and just highlight, you know, where where you've come from, where you're studying right now, and then maybe a little bit about your PhD project that we'll go over a little bit more later. Maybe Julia, would you like to start? Okay, I'll start then. Hello, both of you again. I'm super happy to be here. This is a first time for me doing a podcast, so very exciting and very nice that the first time can be among friends. So as Bram has pronounced very well, um, I'm Julia Alera Viva. Um, I'm right now a first-year researcher in public international law at the European University Institute in Florence. I'm working under the supervision of Professor Arnold Becker-Lorca, as regarding my context a little bit, uh, as Bram has said, um, we went to class together last year. So um, I just graduated from an LLM in public international law in Leiden University. And um, before that, um, well, I also did a, another LLM in Spain to be able to take the bar. And before that, um, I did a law and political science um, double bachelor in um, Universidad Autónoma de Madrid. Yeah, I think that's uh, mainly my background. Thank you. And then Anne? Yeah, so hi, um, I'm Anne. I am also a first year PhD researcher at the University of Amsterdam. Um, I'm in the um, Law and Governance of Quantum Technologies Research Group, which is based at the Information Law um, Institute at UFA. I also did my LLM in Public International Law with Julia and Bram. Um, so my background is I'm from Vienna. That's where I did my law degree. And then I was working for a while. So I worked in white collar crime and dispute resolution. So arbitration, litigation, that whole thing. I worked at the courts, at the prosecutor, and I was also working at the law firm. So very hands-on work. But then I decided to go to the more academic route. So I did my LLM with kind of the intention of maybe I can pivot this to a PhD. So uh, yeah, it kind of all has worked out and now I get to be on your podcast. So that's really, really cool. Amazing. Amazing. Maybe then to immediately start, could you Anne, tell us a little bit about your PhD project and a little bit about the project as a whole? And then maybe we'll get on to how you got there 
a bit later, but just to give context to what you're what you're doing now. Okay. So as I mentioned, I'm a researcher in the Law and Governance of Quantum Technologies Research Group. It's a newly established group. So we are three PhD students and three postdocs um, at the moment. And we're all re um, researching governance questions surrounding uh, quantum technologies, which are these new technologies that are potentially have a lot of capacity uh, power and they're all based on principles of quantum mechanics. Please don't ask me any more details because I will just mess up the physics. So let's skip over that. Ask, it can just I was about be, to ask if you were focusing be, on the law or the physics side of it. <laughs> Obviously, I'm just focusing on the law because it would have been way more impressive if I actually did the physics. But no, I'm just, I'm just focusing on the law. There are more talented people working on the hard sciences at Delft and Eindhoven, which are universities that are in the same like research um, network as us. But uh, we have special people for that. I'm just doing the legal part. So my project is focusing on the law and governance of the innovation processes of these new emerging technologies. So what I'm looking at is how um, legal dynamics, so norms and legal frameworks that arise out of competing interests that govern the innovation process. So it could be a geopolitical interest, it could be corporate, commercial, private interest, or just interests that uh, are rooted in public values like um, responsible tech development or access uh, to new technologies or just generally um, the advancement of scientific progress. So I'm looking at how these dynamics uh, from the tension of all of these interests would play out in the way that these new technology chains just form. So I'm looking at the value chains and I'm looking at how um, the governance of um, technology frameworks kind of shape and construct a chain of new technologies. I hope that all makes sense. If you have questions, just please ask. Sounds super, super interesting. Yes, yeah, so now it's gonna be hard to frame mine to to make it sound interesting. But no, actually it will be fine. It's very different to to Anne's research. So the title of my um the provisional title of my of my research as and um, what was my proposal um to get into the EUI was sovereignty, property, and legal imagination in the interlinguistic spaces of international law, which is a very ambitious, over ambitious title. Um, and I'm essentially interested in interested in the performance of what are considered to be traditionally considered to be as public functions or public prerogatives of the state, such as sovereignty, for example, by private entities, in the specific context of Spanish colonialism in in Latin America. Um, and then within this very broad topic, I'm very much interested in. Um, uh, well, concepts of international law and conceptual frameworks, such as, for example, legal personality. I'm very interested in linguistics. The idea of interlinguistics is a little bit of how um, some basic concepts of international law emerge of the interaction between different cultures in this context, in a context of colonialism and power structures. And um, so in that part, I'm very much in, uh, looking into linguistics, too. And then, yeah, then different concepts of the history of international law, of politics of international law. I'm also looking into the um, political um, instrumentalization of the concept of, well, Spanish colonial law that is commonly known as derecho indiano or derecho criollo. 
So yeah, um, right now I'm probably for the rest of the year, I'm just looking very much into the basic basics. So focusing on how um, Spanish colonialism was legally structured in, in Latin America. And yeah, just reading a lot of a lot of history of international law, not that much law itself, but a lot of history. But yeah, a little bit of everything to to get a more um, defined research question, hopefully by December and a more um, clear research path by the end of the year. Amazing. That sounds both both the projects sound super interesting. It's wonderful how different they are. I think that maybe we can touch a little bit on the the research that you have to start doing to really get into those topics maybe a bit later. But then if we now have this context, I kind of wanted to ask you how you became, you know, in the position that you are right now, how you decided to start doing a PhD, what your process was like. I think I remember both of you, you know, finding out that you were accepted in that whole long process. And it seemed, I remember it seemed like such a relief. So I can only imagine how long and how much went into, you know, deciding and being accepted and the applications. So I maybe wanted to to hear a little bit about that. I think whichever one of you would like to go first. Annie, do you want to go? I go first again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so um, I think I've generally, on the substance, I've always been interested in the intersection between geopolitics and international law. So these two dynamics have always really interested me. and. I guess that's why international law was one of my favorite subjects when I was doing my law degree. So I had a, I guess, natural uh, affinity to like this realm. And when I was doing my LLM, I wrote my thesis on the um, securitization of economic ties um, with regard to supply chains of critical technologies. So technologies that have this kind of like economic and military advantage to them. So things like AI or semiconductors, biotech, they're all under the umbrella of critical technologies. And I think I was naturally drawn to this very particular dynamic because of the geopolitics that were involved in it. So it's not really the technologies. I I just like to put it in very simple terms. I I just really like the drama (laughs) behind it. So I guess that was my entry path into how I got into the quantum technologies uh, research group because I am the only public international law PhD there. I think I'm the only international law person at the Institute. So it's, it's really fun. Amazing. Um, and yeah, so that's my, that's my entry point on the substantive level. On a meta level, why doing a PhD? I guess my honest answer is that I come from an academic family. So I think I had like that pressure in the background that, okay, you're eventually going to do a PhD at some point. So both my parents are academics. They are in the hard sciences. So, and so are my uh, uncles and aunties and and stuff. So I think it was always looming in the background that I was going to do it, but I just didn't know when I was going to do it. But I felt after graduating and having worked for a while, I felt okay, I think I am mature enough to make some kind of intellectual contribution to the field because before that, I'm like, I really, I really don't know if I have a personal opinion of my own. I'm just like, I'm just going to do the legal work, analyze some laws, put it in a memo for a client, that's it. But I think it took just took me a while to have a bit more of a finesse and like intellectual maturity to be able to say, okay, I really want to do um, more academic work because I think I've always been interested in diving deeper on a like legal research level, but I just don't, I didn't have any direction of what it 
was really that really uh, drives me intellectually. So I think it just took me a while after my, my undergrad. And um, then I came to Leiden, met a bunch of really amazing people with different topics. And then I found a topic that I, um, I found super interesting. And then, yeah, that's, uh, that's how I got into it. So hopefully that was a good explanation. Yeah. I mean, all of this is generally very random. So there's not yeah. always like a clearly defined path of how you get into it. But yeah, that yeah, was my, my personal journey. Maybe, maybe to follow up a tiny bit there, do you think that your background of work before moving back into academia, do you think that's been a positive influence now on you? Or do you think that's made it almost more difficult to like switch you know, and back onto this new emphasis. No, I think, I mean, generally, I think if you have worked before, you have um, a sense of self-assuredness because you've kind of like been through the whole office politics kind of like interpersonal dynamics of working because being a PhD at a university, it's it's just like any other work, no? So I think having worked and having gone through the ringer a little bit kind of just um, gives you a little bit of resilience and um, yeah, a little bit more intolerance for BS, <laughs> I'd say. And um, yeah, no, it having had work experience before, having seen how the law works in real life, really, I think is a really added benefit to entering academia because um, yeah, I don't know, it, it gives you a perspective uh, beyond like the ivory tower of uh, of the academy. So I, I think that is definitely a benefit. And um, you know, I'm always a little bit skeptical about doing bachelor's, master's, PhD. So a little gap in the real world, especially for for, for lawyers, is I I would say it's a benefit, not just to toot my own horn, but um, I'm saying this because Julia, I know Julia has a very similar background yeah. to me, so I'm not like shading anyone who didn't work before, but yeah. No, for sure. Okay, Julia, maybe your side a little bit of getting to Leiden and you know coming to the conclusions of mm -hmm. the PhD. Yeah, so as Anne said, we had a quite um, similar background um, professionally because I also worked in a law firm for a year, which was also a fantastic experience personally, professionally. And I think it really, I think it's also important to know what you don't want when you're figuring out what you want to do. So I think for me, like I decided that that um, was not for me. I think I have thought about doing a PhD before working, but I think then COVID happened. Um, so, you know, all the plans that I have thought and the transition that I thought I graduated in 2020. So I think the plans that I had uh, for the, this transition that Anne was talking about of bachelor, master, um, then PhD, uh, will completely crumble and I would say for the best because I think it gave me a lot of perspective it gave me a better CV and it gave me like the opportunity of trying something that I think if I hadn't tried I would have all, like always had on the back of my mind and then of course a lot of personal relations that I will cherish forever so so yeah in that sense I agree completely with what Anne said I think it's very good to have a gap in between and to try other things. And then I think it's less painful to uh, <laughs> willingly decide to lock yourself up for four years to read and write. I think you see it with different eyes. And then as for how, so I came to law, um, not accidentally, but a little bit as a, like a pragmatic decision, I would say. Uh, I was 17, I was like very pissed that 
how the world works. And I really wanted to do political science. I also thought, thought about like doing international relations, sociology, I don't know. You know, the kind of thing that when you're uh, 17 and pleased with the world you want to do. Um, and then I also did law because I was like, hmm, I don't know what I'm going to do after with a political science degree, which is probably the same thing that I'm doing now with a law bachelor, but you know, in the moment, that was my thinking. And then I did law and political science. And I love my law degree, but I always had like the feeling, um, I think in Spanish academia specifically, there's pretty much a very doctrinal approach still to law. So there is not that much room to maybe not just thinking and studying law, but thinking about the law. So I think my political science background really helped on that. And I became very obsessed of like the political power of law, the distributive power, the fragmentation power, the constitutive power. So that was something that I was um, very invested in. I then went to the United States for a year um, just to do political science. And this is very random, but I had a class that was called American Political Development, in which we looked a little bit like not just about, well, in my case specifically, I did my uh, political science final degree thesis on a topic that was the, the politicization of sexual orientation in the United States. So instead of looking at how like sexual orientation as something that was existing and then law came to regulate it, how actually laws uh, sort of cons also constitute, um, constituted these strict categories. And then, yeah, so sort of like no laws regulating reality, but also creating reality. So then parting from that, this was something that I was very obsessed with. And then I started doing international public international the master in public international law. I knew that I wanted to do international law because I think as someone that really liked law and political science, this was like the perfect intersection. And then within Leiden, uh, we had a class um, that is called International Law in Context by Professor Lipizia Logiaco, that I was then my thesis supervisor. And for the First time, like I was looking more into philosophy of law, theories of law, and specifically of international law. And I became acquainted with many authors that are still very important to me today. Um, and I read a ridiculous amount of articles and books to decide my PhD proposal. And then I think my PhD proposal just ended up combining uh, yeah, the topics that I'm like um, obsessed with, which are like language, um, concepts of international law, politics, history, uh, really the dynamics of power. So yeah, I think that's how I ended up here. Perfect. I'm glad, of course, that it worked out. I think just from, let's say, the perspective for myself of somebody who isn't doing a PhD, also isn't on the track to at the moment pursue one, just to walk back a couple steps and just imagine you are now in Leiden, you have both come to the conclusion that you want to do a PhD. Julia, you already mentioned a PhD proposal. I was wondering if you could both maybe very basically explain to me then how the process goes from deciding you want to do this PhD to finding potential paths. What are the steps you have to do? How did you have to prepare? A little bit of that more practical element of what you had to, what path you had to go through to, to then get to your spots right now. Well, I think for me, um... I really knew, like, when I started the LLM, at that point, I was absolutely convinced that I wanted to do a PhD, but I had no idea <laughs> what a PhD proposal entailed. I had some ideas of universities that I found, like, interesting, but I wasn't really sure. Um, so um, I think, I, like, I got really lucky because I got a lot of 
help and guidance from my um, thesis super my, my master thesis supervisor. That's so that I was interested like in a field that maybe not a lot of uh, people like in our class were that interested in. So I think she was excited about that and she helped me a lot. But I think the first thing is just like for me, I had a notebook that I actually like brought with me here that was literally just like a brainstorming note, note, um, notebook. So um, I was just like, while I was reading, I was writing down like the names of professors of articles that I had read that I found interesting. Uh, and then I started looking and then like seeing the universities that they worked at, seeing like how um, the universities like structure their, their research, whether they had like projects, whether like, you know, I was you know, on a more one-to-one -one basis with the, with the professor that would supervise you. So I think from there and then just reading a lot to, you know, find a gap in the literature that interests you too. And then from that, yeah, just drafting your proposal, which is a lot of like starting to write and discarding something, then thinking about the methodology that I think that as lawyers is something that we struggle a lot with. So um, spending a lot of time on, on thinking about the methodology and then just, yeah, doing a little bit of like, not a pros and cons list, but yeah, just like a list of potential universities, potential supervisors. And then a lot of times, uh, a lot of time invested in doing interviews, in doing, in, you know, changing proposals for different universities. And yeah, I think that was pretty much it for me, just reading and, and writing it. And for you, yeah, so I think I can give a little bit of a different perspective than Julia, because there are, I think, broadly speaking, two types of PhDs you can apply for. One, that you apply with a proposal of your own. So you go in with your own little project and it's really your brainchild. The other option, which is actually quite common in the Netherlands, is that you apply for PhD vacancies. So these are vacancies that are created by bigger projects that um, a professor usually get, got a grant for, which is um, what happened in my case. My uh, my supervisor, who's also the principal investigator of the project, he got this uh, grant from something called the Quantum Delta Network, which is a research network that comprises of five different Dutch universities. Amsterdam, which is doing the legal side of quantum technologies. There's Leiden, who's doing, uh, which is doing more um, like science communications. And there are three big technical universities in the Netherlands. Uh, Delft, Eindhoven, and Twente, they are doing the hard sciences. So we're a big like research network and we have projects. So most of the PhDs working on these types of things are applying for vacancy. So you don't have to write a proposal. You just have to convince them that you can come into the project and execute certain things that they said, well, this project kind of entails. So that is how I came into um, the project. And I, the reason why I applied for quantum is not because, well, there's nothing international law related in that sense, but it was a very specific dynamic that I had already looked at during my uh, LM thesis research. So I was looking more about geopolitics and how that influences the way that states um, regulate or um, regulate their ties or like project their powers in terms of like developing these new technologies. And quantum is one of those where a lot of geopolitical competition contestation is happening at the moment. So I think I was naturally drawn to this project, not because there's anything international law related, but I was very excited about like this whole um, space that um, of law, geoeconomics, geopolitics, and generally new technologies. 
So that's how I applied. I applied uh, just by, it was very simple at, in my application that they asked for two writing samples. They asked for a motivation letter explaining um, what kind of connection you have to the, the project. And that was the written part of the application. Um, and then after the written part, you get invited for an online interview, which is the first round. And then in your second round, you have an in-person interview. And that's where you are asked to, um, I guess, present not like a full-fledged research proposal, but what my um, what the hiring committee asked was for me to present a very specific research angle that could be taken in, in the framework of the research project. So I presented a small research idea. Um, and then we had like a whole discussion about it. We were discussing a way to shape one of the many um, potential outputs of the project. So that was my application. So no research proposal. It's more of like convince, it's more of like a job application, convince us that you will be able to execute the project. Then generally with these PhD vacancies in your first year, you will write a full-fledged proposal. And that is very much based on the project outline that is already give, um, like set out by the professor and by extension also by the grant provider. Great. So I guess it's good to overview that there are these two different paths that you can take yeah. towards a PhD proposal or towards a PhD position. Then coming a bit now to the current reality, you both have been accepted. Congratulations again. Both doing Thank amazing you. projects. <laughs> then what does being... I want to say PhD fellow, PhD academic, what does that entail? And a little bit of, let's say, what are your responsibilities? What is your research going to be looking like? And then maybe way at the end, what is going to be the end goal? For me, as let's say somebody who hasn't looked that much into it, for me, a PhD ends in like a book. And maybe that's, and I, I wanted to ask, is that correct? What is going to be, let's say in four years time, three, four, five years time, what is going to be the moment that you say, I have finished my PhD? This is my end product and my end goal. Um, yeah, so maybe to start there, whoever would like to start. I think like in this case, um, like Anne's experience and my own experience probably are very different because I think this completely changes depending on the institution that you're at. So I think the EUI, uh, European University Institute, that is the one that I'm in, is a very particular institution in the sense that it's basically... I don't know. I told to my like to my parents and my friends that are not like, you know, like in the field, like just like it's it feels like a summer camp for research, but during four years, like an, not, not like a summer camp, more like an intensive, you know, like school, but for research, besides of like doing just like some more that you're doing your PhD. Because it's actually uh we have like the four years uh set to write the PhD. And during those four years, we have like different deadlines where it's like now in December, we have to submit like the research question and to present it uh, before a panel of professors and other researchers. Then in February, we have to submit um, another um, different like thing that will have like advance of our research. And then on May, we have like the May paper, which is like a first substantive piece. And that goes like over the four, year, four years until you reach your final destination, which would be uh, to have like the monograph of um, of your thesis. But for example, for me this year, I'm also taking classes. I have to take 21 credits also the second year, which is very nice because it's like it's seminar. So it's like, um, you know, it also has like the format of a class with the professor, the students, but the dynamic is completely different than anything that I've had before because it's basically we read all these texts and then we discuss in class. 
And it's been amazing so far um, to be able to engage with the professor, but also with all these researchers that come from different legal backgrounds, from different schools, from that have completely different perspectives. That has been super enriching in them trying to put that into your own research and your own approach to your research topic. So yeah, I think that's it. And we also do not have teaching responsibilities. You have some uh, like research assistancy tasks that you can take over regarding your supervisor. And then there are some summer schools here that you can do. So you can do some teaching there. You can do some teaching if you go abroad to do like a, a research stay in some other university. But I know that probably, um, yeah, Anne's experience might be a little bit um, different to, to mine in this regard. Yeah, so I think um, one commonality of all PhDs is that your dissertation is generally in law. There's a tradition that the PhD dissertation is going to be a monograph. So it's a big book. But um, I mean, in certain um, universities, also depending on your supervisor, you are also allowed to have a dissertation in articles. So you basically, the supervisor would tell you that the goal is to have four published articles in peer-reviewed journals, and that could um, all together stitch together into one big volume uh, could also constitute your dissertation. It doesn't have to be a book. It could also be publishing articles. Generally, what the goal is, is that you need to have research output, regular research output. So generally, I think, um, like, I mean, the, the rule of thumb is one article per year. Doesn't have to be that strict, but generally it would be nice, even if you're writing a big monograph, that you have intermediate um, results. So at UFA, it's every, let's say, year or uh, what's a math year and a half you would um, have some kind of output. So it could be a conference paper, it could be peer-reviewed um, journal paper, which generally takes a bit of time. So there's a bit of flexibility in that regard. So yeah, that's, I think, very common. With PhDs that I think are project-bound, like the one that I am in, you, of course, have certain responsibilities that you owe to that project. I mean, that's like uh, defined by the grant provider. So for example, you organize workshops for the research network, organizing colloquiums and organizing conferences. So that is very like the classic kind of like side task that you have to do in your PhD. But what I guess is nice about, especially in the Dutch context, I feel that even when you are doing these side projects, I think uh, your su the supervisors are generally very keen on having you organize workshops and conferences that are somehow related to your PhD project, which means that it's very much like a neutrally reinforcing thing. So you're not doing just random research assistance or like any kind of random assistantship for the project. You are actually involved in certain um, activities that will still be conducive for your research. So it's not any in any sense wasted time. And generally it's a nice way to connect with the community by being involved in like kind of like a scientific kind of space there so it's yeah it's really beneficial so you're not just locked up in a chamber doing your own research there's a lot of like engagement with the journalist uh, academic space that you're in so yeah that's good I feel that that'd be healthy one of the critiques I've heard again very much from an outsider perspective or one of the worries that I've heard a lot of people have is being tied to this one project for three or four years and being let's say committed to this idea and committed to this work process yeah, and I maybe wanted to hear what your thoughts were on this this worry that people might have, or if you had this worry yourself, 
or how you feel like it's going, especially now that you've really started the process and started researching or started, you know, at the first steps of the process? I think it's all about like finding like a balance because I think once you once you start like reading for your topic, you're gonna read so much interesting stuff, and I think it's important to be able like to differentiate which stuff is like pertinent in that moment to entertain and which stuff isn't. I actually in this brainstorming notebook, I already have like a list of like things that I would like to research in the future, you know, because I feel like I'm interested in, like. Third, like I think there's people that have like a very clear idea of what they're like into like I don't know law the sea environmental law like very specific things I think I have an idea of mine but within my idea I'm interested in many different things so I put that I write that on a notebook so I don't forget and it's like okay in the future you know maybe I can look into this and I've been talking to people like it's very interesting while you do your PhD like at some point maybe like publish an article on something that is not strictly your topic but it will be good that will be within the area of expertise that you're going on because otherwise you're going to encounter 300 different rabbit holes. And if you pursue all of them, then it's going to be hard to, to focus on your on your research. But I think that as long as it's like slightly connected and fruitful, even if it's not like strictly on the same thing, I think it's good. But I think, yeah, it's also good to, to try to stay on lane because we're like exposed to so much like information and interesting things that other colleagues are doing for example like in my case like, I got surrounded by so many people that are doing such interesting things that it's very easy to get I don't know distracted very easily yeah I guess from my from my perspective I don't have that fear yet that I will get sick of my project my fear only is that I don't have enough time to dig into everything that um, I want to see and or dig into everything that the project is expecting me to uh, to touch upon. So that is more of the fear. I don't, I don't think I will get sick of it because it's such a new uh, frontier that there's always going to be something to, to research. There's always going to be more potentials for research output. So that is not really the, the issue. I think it's more of like, it's so broad. At some point you have to like draw the line somewhere and be like, okay, I'm not researching anymore. This is my plan to, I plan for an idea and I'm just gonna write that or I'm just gonna write this chapter of my thesis not like go into like 10 million different paths. So I think um, defining the scope of your research is one of those things that will be, for me at least, one of the main challenges because I have kind of short attention span so I get very distracted I want to do everything but it's good to be focused and I guess that's also um, the nice thing about having a good supervision team is that they if your supervisor is good they'll try to keep you on track and see that you are still doing your uh, your project and that you are not you know heading to you know other directions so I think that um that's a nice like symbiosis between you and your supervisor um as well to see that especially if you're doing very project-bound work then that you're like staying on track so you also have accountability to to that as well makes it more of a team effort maybe a bit more of a team game rather than just a very yeah. solo project I mean obviously I think uh, the supervisor has a personal stake in in the project being staying on track because it's his project he's getting grant money he has to answer to the grant providers so there's like a very like neutral 
interest in like that you are staying on track and that you are graduating on time. I know that there are certain cases where you take a bit longer than four years, but especially in the like project PhDs, yeah, there's a huge interest that you graduate on time because, well, yeah, they have a certain people to report to who are funding the project. If I can add also something to this, I think sometimes besides of like staying on track with your topic and not entertaining like the 25 different topics that you might be interested in like writing about or researching about, I think another thing is also the 25 different ways of approaching a topic. So I'm very much like, I'm interested in doing like interdisciplinary research with history, with linguistics, but that entails, that takes a lot of time. Like right now I'm also taking like history courses. I'm also like learning more about linguistics because I don't have that background. So I think it's very interesting to have like an interdisciplinary perspective to, to a topic. But I think in order to have something really interdisciplinary, you have to get serious about like the fields that you're engaging with. And I think sometimes it can also be challenging because there are so many different ways in which you could approach something. I've met so many people now also doing empirical work in law. So I think that's also something that, that you have to draw the line. Like, okay, if I'm going to do something interdisciplinary, the disciplines that I'm going to engage with, I'm going to take them seriously and I'm going to dedicate them the time that they deserve and need. So I think that's also something that you need to, to stay in tr on track with. I get that will be very important. Maybe then to kind of not round off our conversation, but to kind of look at academia and public international law academia as a whole. I wanted to potentially ask a bit about the, the international law community and potentially whether you had some thoughts on that, whether you had some things that you didn't like as much that potentially you would like to have changed or something that maybe worried you at the start. And just hear your thoughts on the community and the general approach of public international law PhDs. Maybe Anne, if you'd like to start this time. Yeah, well, I have to put a disclaimer that I'm not working fully within the um, like pill academic community because a lot of my work, I mean, my my PhD is basically at the Information Law Institute at uh, at Amsterdam. So I'm also surrounded by information law and technology law lawyer. So that's kind of a different field but because I had this international law background and um, some parts of my PhD is also employing an international law framework to look at the governance of quantum tech so I'm also um, quite in contact with the PIL community in at UFA as well. Um, so just a disclaimer on that. I think the PIL community is generally a very critically minded um, you know, space. People are very, very sharp and very incisive, not just on legal issues, but also political and geopolitical issues. So I think it's a very, um, very good um, place to be in if you like to think and if you like to overthink. So I, I would say that. Um, so that is, I think, one of the, the highlights of being in, in this space. What I think is, maybe something that you still uh, as a young academic that you have to contend with is I, I don't think this is a, something that is very much tied to pill academia in general but it's more like it's public international law as a field um i think what um i'm i'm commending the field for being very critical which is like good but they are very critical on like substantive issues what they don't do well kind of is their 
there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect between more, I guess, more senior or established uh, people who kind of already have the footing and young people, uh, um, you know, going into the field and the, you know, financial instability that is entailed when you work in public international law, be in academia or generally anything else. I think it's not like a secret that um, it's not the most well-funded field there is. So funding for PhDs, funding for other internship positions is might be non-existent. So that is something that a lot of young people entering into the field have to contend with. And that is not something that is often very discussed amongst the more senior people. Or it's kind of like accepted that, okay, this is a, a huge struggle that you kind of go through it and eventually you kind of like get over it. But there's not, um, there's, I don't know, the, the willingness to engage in it is not very enthusiastic. So I think there is a lot of room for improvement in that aspect to be not just critical about the topic that we study, but also critical about, you know, the workforce <laughs> that is actually supporting and, you know, holding up this uh, this field. I think that is something that I've noticed so far and something that I think about a, a lot. So I think if people would have be more willing to have that conversation in that regard, I think that would, you know, be a massive help to young people in pillar academia and also like beyond. Does it then represent a very strict hierarchy almost of like these people, you know, very hierarchical in where you are in this group of people or where you are at this university? I don't think it's, it's not anything that is very, um, very apparent. I think um, most people kind of are under the impression that it's very it's relatively flat especially in the dutch context i mean professors are very very friendly we're all on like first names with with our professors so it's not that it's more of like there's this underlying tension um that maybe sometimes is swept under the rug because i think a very distinct you know characteristic of international law is that the issues that we are dealing with are very you know, serious. Let's just put it like that. It's serious issues of mass atrocities or inequalities or what have you not. And those are the things that people want to gravitate towards because they're like, these are the important issues in the field. And my gosh, we're all, acad uh, you guys are interns, academics in largely Western institutions. I mean, what do you have to complain about? But I mean, obviously there's still some things to be, you know, um, not complain about, but it's it. Those are legitimate concerns of young people who go into pill academia or, or beyond that. You know, it's not very well fun, uh, funded, and I mean, how are we supposed to support ourselves? I generally, I think that a lot of those like small concerns are being you know kind of bracketed out because the field itself is more preoccupied with big world issues. So I think there's a little bit of a disconnect there in how um, the more senior people or the more you know, established people and the young people, because we do have our personal concerns. And of course, that should be taken into account because we are part of the field. You can't just talk about international law as just the topic, but also it's important to know who are the people working in, in this field as well. So I think that is something that um, should be you know taken with a little bit more gravity, I'd say. I think that I, I fully agree with Anne, and I think like in general, besides of like the academic part of public international law, I think public international law per se is an incredibly competitive field. 
like I'm seeing that also like with um, our colleagues like we who have just graduated and he's like a lot of them having like exceptional like CVs being exceptional people and still struggling a lot to find their way um, within the field you still have a lot of like um, unpaid internships which is something that I mean it's 2023 and we still live with this situation specifically and it seems so like contradictory in a field of like you know human rights um and so so yeah that's something so I think academia even I would yeah I would say like considering like how bad academia is in this regard and echoing everything that answers I would say that within public international law academia might not even be like the one the, the part that is like worst off compared to like other internships maybe like on international organizations on NGOs and uh, on other types of institutions like um the competition and the, the conditions like the entrance burden that seems to be for someone to be able to build a career within this field it's it's incredibly big but yeah I think besides this I would say that um I love the, the community I think last year in Leiden I was already like incredibly like, happy with the people I met and then besides of like the social part of everyone being like great people and besides are very interesting people that you could talk about them like about everything and people that were genuinely concerned about like global topics global politics um I think I don't know every time that I learned about like the thesis topic the master thesis topics of like other people I was just like fascinated I think it's also great because it's such a broad topic that you have people doing public international law but like what you just see like with Anna and I but you have such like so many possibilities so many different things so I think it's fascinating and then within the EUI I've also encountered like a great community I think it's also like a very exceptional place in terms of like the community it has because you have like just like all these people, all of them like doing research, like my cohort just for law is 29 people. So it's, I don't know, like it's a very exceptional place in the sense that yeah, you have, yeah, so many people researching different things, different ideas. So that's great. And I've also been very surprised of like encountering a lot of people going out of their way to have a chat with you on your proposal, like genuinely interested in what you're doing. And I'm not just talking about like people in your cohort that you're socializing with and at the same time, maybe they learn about your proposal. I'm talking about like third or fourth year, like PhD students that um, maybe like in a conversation, you tell them a little bit about your proposal and then you get an email like the same day sending you like two articles referring you to like this other colleague that might be interested in your research like there was this one girl that I met and at, like at a party and he's like she then sent me like a tweet at 4 a.m saying like I'm sorry for sending you this at this time but there's this guy that does colonial law too and you might be interested in like talking to him and I feel like it's so nice to be like because I think there's like, the idea that all of these fields are like and academia specifically is like very competitive. And I think it is, I think specifically to get into it, like the field is competitive, but I wouldn't say at least, I don't know, we've also been like, we, we just started basically. So maybe if you ask me again in some months, my opinion has shifted. But as of now, I still remain very optimistic. And I think that the people within it, are generally nice they're generally interested in what you're doing they're generally interested in sharing like their 
research the ideas with you and what can come from like those conversations and those interactions. So, so far, so good. I have uh, no complaints in, in regards to the government. I'm glad to hear and also to highlight the things that maybe we should all think about a bit more or try to get through to potentially older colleagues or other colleagues. I think just unfortunately in the interest of time, I think we can probably already round off our conversation. Maybe then I'd like to ask both of you, potentially just if you have any last recommendations for people preparing a proposal or applying in academia, and potentially, I think, uh, as one of you suggested, a book recommendation to share with everyone. Trust your intuition, trust your gut instinct with picking a research topic and picking a vacancy because your intuition doesn't lie. So don't force yourself to write a proposal on a topic that you find mildly interesting you really have to be obsessed with it. And I think you, people generally, if you like a topic, you, your intuition will tell you that this is something I can see myself doing. If you have doubts about it, you don't have to do a PhD. It's not going to, it's not like this fancy title that you easily get like like a regular grad degree. You just, you do a PhD because you really do like the topic. The title is something that is should be very, very low on the list because it's it's competitive to get in. It's very taxing to um, be attached to one specific project for four years. So it's really something you do if you love the topic and just trust yourself and your instincts in, in what you choose. I think that would be my my advice. Thank you. I think I think for me, I think that I, I agree with Anne, but I would say I think. I struggle to like define my topic. Like I knew the things that I was interested in. I knew, yeah, like I was interested in the history of international law and I was interested in seeing that in regards to that in America. I had like, so I knew more or less like the ideas that I was interested in, but I think because there's this huge focus in like finding a gap in the literature. So it's like, I think I had the perception of like, I don't know exactly what I'm going to ask that hasn't been asked yet and resolved yet. And I don't know what I have to add to the discipline, you know, or what can I contribute? I think for me, the idea of contributing to the discipline seems like seems like such a huge thing of being like, I'm just like learning now. So I think for me, my recommendation would be to read a lot, to write your ideas down, to not be scared, like, I think I probably thought about, like, 25 different topics. It just, like, in, in terms of, like, different questions that I was asking the literature. So I think it's important to ask those questions while you're reading. And then from those questions, um, also, I would say, discuss with other people. Like, talk about, like, I want to, from here, like, formally apologize from my friends for my master, like, last year. For the amount of hours that I spent just like being like, you know, I thought about this and I think actually this idea that I have thought, I think you can actually approach it like in a different way. So maybe that would be interesting for like, I want to thank them for like listening to me and apologize for putting them through that. But honestly, like people are really interested in these things too and they also want to discuss their things with you. So like the, the insights that you're gonna get from this interaction I think it's very hard to get them from like anything else and then don't be scared because it's like for me I think I was very reluctant I was like until I do not have the exact question I'm not gonna be able to start like thinking about my proposal and I think 
you like even when you do your proposal maybe you don't have the exact question could you also like or not even have it like I think I was very obsessed to even thinking about what could be the answer of the question and I remember my thesis supervisor from like like telling me like if you had the answer for your questions then it wouldn't make sense because you're supposed to spend like four or five years whatever like answering this question so uh, don't be scared of having something that don't be scared of not, not having like answer to all the questions also when you present your proposal because it's normal it's just like I think it's more like about showing that this is something that you're interested in something that you have done some pre preliminary research and something that you're willing to work on in the future so yeah don't be afraid to read to talk with other people and to have like um, open-ended questions that you might not have like the answer to yes yet. Amazing. And then to finish, do you both have a book recommendation or a topic recommendation that you would suggest people to look more into? I do have a book recommendation. I do have it on my desk so I can show you. Thank so you. I would Thank recommend um, that people read this book. It's called The Underground Empire. I'm reading it at the moment and it was a lot of the ideas presented in this book um, were what inspired my um, my LLM thesis. So what this book talks about is um, the power of economic networks and the way that states can weaponize the interconnectedness in our like globalized economy. So economic network can be supply chains, can be energy supply chains, telecommunications networks, surveillance networks, so different types of networks and how states can use it and identify certain vulnerabilities and choke points in it. And if they can exercise power over those important hubs in, an, uh, in a network, there are different ways to you know, project power and undermine their economic rivals. So that is what this book talks about. And um, you can understand that this pertains a lot to supply chains and supply chains of critical technologies, which is very much what I'm researching now. So that's what I'm reading. And I would recommend anyone who's interested in geopolitics and generally uh, great power competition to, to read the book and pick it up. It's actually, it's not even so, so long. I think it's only like less than 300 pages. So yeah, it's a quick read. Talking like a real academic there, a quick read for 300 pages. The letters are quite big, so okay. <laughs> it's not okay, dense. Good. Good. I will add it 100% into the description below. And Julia? So I, I have some book recommendations. I think there are two books that I need to mention because they were a huge inspiration for me while doing my proposal. One of them is To the Uttermost Parts of Earth by Goskeniemi. Um, but that's like a thousand pages long. So I feel like that for a book recommendation, maybe, I don't know. Like, um, I would like, I, I would recommend it. It's a fantastic book. And for me, it was like the main inspiration for my proposal, but maybe, I don't know, check out some chapters that you might be interested in because it's really good. Then another book by Anthony Andy, which is Imperialism, Sovereignty and the Making of International Law was a huge inspiration. Also quite a long book, but maybe someone more interested like in this specific topic, definitely um, these are two books that I would read. And then maybe shorter books and less like focused on my specific topic. I've just started reading a book that my, my thesis supervisor from the EU I mentioned that is The Alchemy of Race and Rights by Barbara Johnson, and I'm really, really enjoying it. So I would recommend that one. And then a more unrelated book recommendation is while I was doing this course, American Political Development, that I talked about 
and preparing my thesis topic, I read a book that completely changed like my perception of things and the way that I approach law and politics. That is called Hellfire Nation. It's by James Morone. I don't know if I pronounce that right. And it's about, well, it's called, I think the, the subtitle of the book is uh, The Politics of Sin in American Politics, something like that. I, I don't have it on top of my head. But it talks basically about like the influence of religion in then saving all American political life. And I found it absolutely fascinating. I will be rereading it for sure. So I think that's something that I would um, I, I would recommend. Yeah. Thank you both. And then I think as we round on the hour for our recording, I want to thank you both so much for your time, for coordinating with me, because I know it took quite a bit of time to come together. And I just, yeah, I just really appreciate you both telling us about this. And hopefully, you know, maybe in one year, two years, or in a couple of years, we can recheck in, hear more about how your topics are going more in depth and where you are with it and how your opinions might have changed or stayed exactly the same on PhDs, you know, a couple of years down the line. But thank you really very much. I think it's really incredible to hear both of your experiences. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. And thank you for extending that kind of informal invitation. I think both of our supervisors would be very grateful as well for you to keep us kind of like accountable that uh, huh. maybe in one or two years we get another invitation to a podcast to update our research. So thank you. Yeah, That'd thank you, Ram. It was lovely. Thank you. Once again, I would like to thank everyone for listening to this episode, and especially thank our wonderful guests for their time and energy. I can personally attest to their brilliance and hard work, so it was truly an honor to talk to them again on the podcast. I already look forward to in the future checking back in and hearing more about their PhD projects and progress in the future. I would lastly like to invite everyone to review the podcast on any podcast platform and interact with the episode on all the podcast social media platforms, such as Twitter and LinkedIn, all at the Auxiliary Chamber. Finally, if anybody would be interested in being a guest on the podcast to discuss an international law issue or subject, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. Thank you again, everyone, for your time and talk to you all soon.